Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. It's dusk and you're running through a forest, your friend close behind you. You've been playing an exhaustive game of hide-and-seek, and although dinner's been ready for half an hour, and your stomach aches with pangs of hunger, you aren't ready to be caught just yet. You duck and dive between trees and bushes, and slowly but surely you start to gain some distance between you and your friend, fervently trying to end the game. You're half covered in mud, lying face down in a small ravine that borders the forest behind your house like a small moat. You don't make a sound. You begin to listen to their footsteps between the croaks and ribbits of country land frogs, eating dusk-time bugs and singing to one another. The air has a brisk chill to it and the mud soaking through your clothes is testing your resolve to stay hidden, testing your resolve to win, but you're determined not to get up, not to fold. You want absolute victory. You need to be uncatchable. You can hear your friend whacking at bushes with a stick, clearly losing patience, but your crystal clear focus isn't quite as weak. You remain deathly still, willing yourself invisible, becoming part of your surroundings. Your friend begins to leave, but maybe this is all just a plot for you to reveal yourself. You aren't moving until you know for certain they are gone. The sun is now gone. Even if they are sitting down waiting 20 feet away like you think they might be, they wouldn't see you move from your hiding spot. But they could possibly hear you move. You meticulously raise your arm and place it underneath you, readjusting your foot to brace yourself. You slowly pull up from the earth beneath you, peeling yourself away from the dirt and mud and water. You peek over the edge of the ditch. Nothing. No movement. No one sitting down waiting. Mind you, it's dark and you can barely see, but your keen hide-and-seek instincts are directing your moves now. You finally climb out of the ditch, standing on your feet. It's a lot breezier out of the ditch, and you feel a chill run down your spine as your wet clothes are hit by the gentle breeze. You've won. Now to make your way out of the forest without tripping or running into a tree. Your chest is warm with the excitement of victory, and a smile tests the limits of your face as you raise your arms triumphantly with no one around to see. Then you hear them. Coyotes. You forgot until now you're afraid of the dark, and you run. Sound familiar?
There is something primal, something native to our souls about the game of hide and seek. It teaches us spatial awareness. It hones our instincts as children. It lights your nerves on fire as you evade capture. And frankly, my creepy friend, it's just a hell of a lot of fun. But not all games of hide and seek are so fun. Nor is your life or the lives of others truly on the line when you played as children. Like those games, police and investigators throughout the early 1980s found themselves in a game of hide and seek, but one which held the lives of innocent people on the line. Police had no choice but to play a game of cat and mouse with the weepy voiced killer. New Year's Eve 1980 was much like any other New Year's. The celebration was joyous, ushering in the new year, and house parties and bars filled with people promising themselves that in a few short hours, everything would change, that this year would be their year. Karen Potak was one such person, laughing, drinking champagne, and dancing. Karen had gone to University Avenue where for a mere $11 cover charge, she could reign in the new year the right way. 1981 started with a smile on her face and a drink in her hand, but shortly after the stroke of midnight, she left the bar and wandered off into the streets of St. Paul alone. A little after three, St. Paul Police Department received a peculiar and chilling 911 call. Yes, please, this is an emergency. Police and a squad just passed by the road. Malmberg Manufacturing Company, machine shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? Just hurry. There's a, she's laying on the ground in the back by the, by the railroad tracks, by the engine. Hurry. What, what's the address? I don't know. Who are you? Investigators followed up on the call, driving out to Pierce Butler Road, although they thought the call was initially a prank call. The man sounded exaggerated and feminine as if he were putting on a voice to be funny or trying to entertain a group of friends listening. Begrudgingly, police headed out into the cold of the Minnesota winter and traveled to the Malmberg Manufacturing Company machine shop and found Karen Potak naked and face down in a snowbank by some railway tracks, exactly how the caller had described. She had been beaten and her skull cracked open. Karen was rushed to the hospital and doctors worked frantically to save her life. She did survive, but she was mentally impaired and had no recollection of the attempt on her life. This was the first time St. Paul police had received such a peculiar and foreboding call, but it wouldn't be the last. Unknown to them at the time, they were now playing cat and mouse with a vicious killer, one who wouldn't stop at the terrible assault on Karen Potak, but would live on in infamy thanks to his unusual calling card. The weepy voiced 911 calls. On June 3, 1981, in a field near a construction site in St. Paul, Minnesota, a group of teenagers played about enjoying the start of summer and the end of spring's sporadic showers and chilly days when they made a traumatizing discovery. The body of a young woman. 
when police arrived on the scene, they saw that she died from a series of stab wounds to her chest, stomach, and inner thighs. But apart from the body, there was nothing else left at the crime scene to indicate who could have been responsible or why. When examined later, it was determined the young woman had been stabbed 61 times with an ice pick or a screwdriver. Investigators scoured the field looking for anything that might bring a speedy close to the case. If the killer had stuck around long enough to stab the victim 61 times, then surely they must have left something behind. Anything. But as the day came to a close, the investigators' illusions of coming across a golden clue quickly evaporated. What police did recover was a bus station locker key off the body of the young woman found in the field. Police, already and unknowingly engaged in this game of catch me if you can, were then led to a locker, number 750, at a bus station in downtown St. Paul. Inside the locker, police found two bags with the name Kimberly Compton. Kimberly was an 18-year-old high school graduate from Pepin, Wisconsin, who, like so many other kids from small towns all over the world, had packed up her bags and jumped on a bus, seeking excitement and opportunity in the big city. But within hours of arriving in St. Paul, she met the wrong kind of person, the kind I hope you or I never meet, my friend. When the coroner examined the contents of her stomach, they found her last meal, steak and fries. Kimberly had walked across the street from the bus station, perhaps to fill her aching and hungry stomach after a long bus ride, and pushed through the front doors of Mickey's dining car. The night she went missing, their blue plate special was barbecue beef and fries. Her big city adventure was short-lived. She got off the bus, placed her bags in a locker, then went across the street to have dinner, and there found herself in bad company. Now, remember when I said that police would receive another weepy voice 911 call? Of course you do, creep. A couple days after the discovery of Kimberly Compton's body, police received another call. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day and I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. This second call left something nagging at the back of investigators' mind. Had there been another call like this? There was something odd and familiar about the voice, the feminine nature of the crying man. Police were unable to recollect, but investigators decided they had to listen to the station's backlog of recorded phone calls. And it was there that they found the original call, which had led them to Karen's remains. Police turned to the public for help and released the call to the media, hoping that someone would be able to identify the unique and odd voice that kept calling them with reports of its evil deeds that were plaguing St. Paul. 
Phone calls from citizens all over St. Paul and Minneapolis began to flood the police tip line. Everyone thinking someone they knew was the killer. Their neighbor, their brother, an old high school teacher who was particularly nasty and cruel. But weeks started to pass, and then six months had passed since the discovery of Kimberly's body, and police were no closer to discovering the monster amidst the crowd than they had been at the beginning while it was fresh in everyone's minds. It was now August 6, 1982. Fourteen months had now passed since the murder of Kimberly Compton. Summer was now in its final thrall, burning bright and hot while summer still lasted and a young paperboy was out enjoying the weather while doing his usual deliveries, when he spotted something along the bank of the Mississippi River on the Minneapolis side opposite St. Paul. It was the body of a woman. Whoever had killed this woman had clearly tried to conceal their crimes. The body had been thrown down a large embankment towards the Mississippi River, but thick underbrush had grabbed hold of the body and tangled her into the side of the embankment, preventing her from washing away down the fabled river. Police were able to identify the body as Barbara Simons, a 40-year-old nurse. And then two days later, police received their third phone call from the weepy-voiced killer. Fire emergency. Please don't talk to this person. I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh my chief. Oh, oh, I don't know what you're mad at me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? There's so many guys with a red shirt on. It's me. I killed both people. I'm sorry. I'm never going to get this. Minneapolis investigators had heard this voice before on a television broadcast nearly a year and a half ago, and when compared to the previous calls, they determined it was the same man. The weepy-voiced killer was now officially a serial killer. He would not stop until police found him and arrested him. Whoever the man was, whoever it was crying to police, he enjoyed talking about his crimes as if he were in a confessional at church, trying to absolve himself of what he had done. He had mentioned heaven in the phone calls. Perhaps he was religious, police thought, as they developed their profile. While they contemplated who this killer was and what made him kill, there was one thing they knew for sure. He was only just starting. But luckily for police, this next attack would not go as planned. On August 21st, 1982, a 19-year-old sex worker named Denise Williams was working when a man pulled up. She got in his car and money was exchanged, but on their way, Williams felt uneasy as the man began driving through a dark, poorly lit suburban area, rather than returning her to the city where he had originally picked her up. The man turned onto a dead-end road and stopped his car. He got out and around to the passenger side door, opened the door, and began stabbing Denise 13 times. Denise Williams grabbed a glass bottle that lay in the car and smashed the man across the head, cutting his face and screamed. 
A man who lived nearby heard those screams and came out to find Denise being attacked and began to wrestle the serial killer, who then fled in fear. The Good Samaritan was able to call for an ambulance, saving Denise Williams' life, but there was another call that was made shortly after. Upon arriving home to his apartment, the killer noticed the bleeding from the glass bottle Denise had smashed across his face. Panicking at the amount of blood, the killer called 911. You find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Investigators responded to the home of Paul Michael Stefani, and it didn't take long for the pieces to come together. Investigators headed to the hospital and walked through the sterile white hallways to Denise's room, where she lay stitched and recovering, and asked her if she recognized a photo of her attacker. Denise instantly identified Paul Stefani as the man who had stabbed her. Police could sense Paul Stefani wasn't just responsible for Denise Williams' assault. They could literally hear it in his voice. In the interrogation room, investigators pulled out the weepy-voiced killer case file, stuffed with the photos of victims, Kimberly, Barbara, Denise, and Karen. Paul Stefani shot up from his chair, enraged, panicking. His voice immediately changed. It was high-pitched and whiny like the voice from the 911 calls. You're not going to pin those on me, he said. But this wasn't the first time investigators had Paul in their crosshairs. When police had discovered the body of Barbara Simons, they had interviewed family and friends trying to recreate the final hours of her life and had discovered that she'd been out on the town the night she went missing. More specifically, she had gone to Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis. Police went to question the staff and found that a bartender and waitress saw Barbara talking with an unidentified white male. The waitress even remembered Barbara saying to her offhandedly, He's cute, I hope he's nice, since he's giving me a ride home. Police scoured and dug through piles of mugshots of men with a history of violent assault, picking and choosing between likely potential suspects eliminating those who had relocated or had reliable alibis and eventually narrowed it down to an eight-photo lineup based on the bartender and waitress's description of the man. Investigators went back to Hexagon Bar and had the staff go through the mugshots where they ultimately identified Paul Stefani. Investigators began their background check on their suspect and discovered Stefani had been an employee at the manufacturing company where Karen Potak had been attacked on New Year's Eve 1980. Paul Stefani was now the main and only suspect in the series of murders. Police set up a surveillance team on Paul's apartment complex and watched him. And on the evening of August 21st, 1982, Paul left his apartment and drove into Minneapolis. But police sadly and tragically lost track of him. It wasn't more than a few hours later that police received a call from a man witnessing Denise Williams being stabbed with a screwdriver. The man attempted to intervene wrestling the killer, but the suspect threatened him and ran. 
There was no doubt that Paul Stefani was the man that they had been searching for. But why had Paul Stefani snapped? Why had his signature calls started two years prior? What was the catalyst? Investigators discovered Paul Stefani had a girlfriend who he had been in love with, who had ended up returning to her home country of Syria for an arranged marriage. Paul was attacking his girlfriend, trying to alleviate the pain and betrayal he felt through catharsis, seeing the face of his ex in place of the face of his victims. This is what made him snap, police were theorizing, what had turned him into a killer, a delicate ego and heartbreak. During his trial, Paul Stefani's sister was called to the stand where prosecutors played her the recordings of the weepy-voiced killer. Without more than reasonable hesitation, any family member would have when accusing a loved one, she identified the voice of that of her brother, Paul. Stefani was charged with the assault of Williams and the murder of Barbara Simons and received 18 years for the attack on Williams and 40 years for Simons' murder. But prosecutors and police sadly weren't able to assemble and unearth enough evidence to try him for the murders of Karen or Kimberly. More than a decade passed after his conviction when Paul reached out to law enforcement from behind bars. He would confess to all of his crimes for one thing. They had to give him a photograph of his mother's headstone. Stefani admitted to the assault on Denise Williams and the murders of Kimberly and Barbara and the other assault on Karen Potak, to which he had always professed his innocence. He also confessed to the murder of a woman he had drowned in a bathtub. Kathleen Greenling, a 33-year-old schoolteacher who had been found drowned in her tub on July 21, 1982. Paul Stefani never offered a reason why he had murdered these women. He only said there was a voice in his head saying, Paul, it's time to kill. Much like his confessional phone calls, like a juvenile boy confessing petty sins to a Catholic priest in the confessional booth, Paul Stefani was only confessing because it would be his last confessional. He had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and would die a year later on June 12, 1998. If he had any hope of reaching heaven, to him, in his sick and rotted mind, filled with the ichor and tar of his terrible crimes, he would have to heed the words of his Catholic mother. Mother always told me, if something hurts you, go to God. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door.